welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. My name is Justin Bullock, and I'll be your host. In this episode, we talk about the U.S. foster care system. I have on as guests a few of my students who did a report on the Children's Bureau and the foster care system in particular. They cover the history of the foster care system and some of its challenges over time and current. And it's really interesting. It was really interesting for me to learn more about the Children's Bureau, although it is also a bit... Um, sad at points and a bit frustrating at points to see the ways in which we are continuing to to fail often some of the most vulnerable members of our society. So I uh, hope you find this talk interesting. hope you learn a little bit more about the U.S. foster care system and I uh, hope it draws attention to some of the challenges we still have. Um, thanks for following along and thanks for listening to this episode. Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. Um, this is the first interview I've done of this kind today. Um, I'll be chatting with a group of my students who did an evaluation project on the federal foster care program. This is one of their major projects uh, for the master students to complete. This project was very well done, so I thought it could be fun to share it with you. There will likely be more of this type of interview in the future if more students are interested in sharing their work uh, on the podcast, so I'll let them do that. Um, but what we'll start with is I'll let each of the students introduce themselves. They'll tell you their name, uh, what year they are in this program, uh, a little bit about what they're interested in and where they're from. So we'll start with that and then we'll move towards talking about the topic for today. Hi, my name is Adria Escobedo. I'm a first year student here at the Bush School and I'm interested in public policy analysis and I am from San Antonio, Texas. Hi, I'm Elizabeth O'Connor. I'm a first-year student at the Bush School. I'm interested in public policy analysis, and I'm from Long Island, New York. I'm Ashley Carter. I am a first-year student at the Bush School. I'm interested in nonprofit management and emergency management in international settings, and I'm from San Antonio, Texas. Hi, I'm Caitlin Malik. I'm a first-year Bush student. I'm interested in public management, and I'm from Burleson, Texas. I'm Anya Stamates. I'm a first year at the Bush School. I'm from Washington State and I'm interested in nonprofit management. All right, nice to meet everyone. Thanks again for taking time out of your busy schedules as graduate students to come chat with us today. So we're gonna talk about the foster care program and the treatment of children without long-term parents uh, in general today as part of the as part of the episode. So but I want to start with a background on what the US has actually done historically for children without long-term care or without access to their biological parents and what that's looked like over time. I know in your report, you highlight that major efforts at the federal level, at the federal U.S. level, began in 1912. So I was hoping that uh, one of you could lay out the history of the first efforts in 1912 and get us up to current day, and then we'll talk a little bit about the foster care program specifically. So uh, maybe one of you could jump in. Sure, so the federal government first started regulating the welfare of child in 1912 with the creation of the Children's Bureau. In 1935, it became a part of Social Security as Title IV, Part III. Um, with that, it gave it a budget within Social Security. States were able to get $10,000 allocated and then with additional funding based off their rural population and any special needs districts. So it started with the Social Security Act, is that true? It started in 1912 with the Children's Bureau Children. and got written into the Social Security Act. So Children's Bureau came first yes. and it started in 1912. Mm -hmm. 
And then in the 30s with the Social Security Act, the actual foster care program was started? The actual foster care program, as it is titled today, as Title IV-B and Title IV-E, began in 1958. Gotcha. And was there any efforts before 1912? Do we do, Was that part of your research? I mean, do you know... What, what access did children without parents have before 1912? As far as federally goes, the federal system, this was the first real regulated, organized way. Obviously, there were state-run and city-run orphanages and homes for children without families, but this is the first federal time. So, okay, so that gets us the Social Security Act in 1935, and then is, does anything happen between that and the actual formation of the foster care program, which I think you said was in 58? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, the only real changes to that was just where funding came from and how much was allocated every year, every time Social Security is restructured with money. Um, in 1958, the concept of rural populations and special needs districts went away, and states were allocated more money based off of per capita income and children under 21. And how much changes, so what, what's changed from the 1950s until the current foster care program or is it mostly are the parameters around it mostly the same for the most part they're the same with title 4b now it's going to uh, subpart one which is child welfare services as we know today and subpart two which is the family preservation act Um, as far as that goes it's more of a budgeting difference subpart one is again allocated to states states are now allocated seventy thousand dollars a year with additional funding based off under 21 population and per capita income. And subpart two is a grant-based funding um, with going towards state-specific initiatives and policies from the federal government. And so is so that gets us all the way up to now because there wasn't a ton of changes from the 50s till now. So maybe someone could tell me a little bit about how the program actually works. It sounds like, um, Elizabeth, that you're saying the federal government funds it and they give so much money per child to the states Mm -hmm. and then the states actually administer the foster care program and so what is that what is the actual what are the actual pieces of this program if the states are administering it maybe someone could tell me what does it look like at the state level i imagine there's some variance but some basic rules or or how does that what does that look like it's actually very different Okay. State. Um, it really is kind of going to depend on where you're at. So an example is that foster families, if they get qualified or certified in one state, if they move states, they have to start all over again. So there's not really like a nationwide federal standard of some things. There's best practices, um, but nothing that's really going to be able to transfer easily across states. So is the basic then that the federal government makes some amount of money per child available and then the states are, do they have pretty free reign on how they uh, provide those services? I imagine there's some rules around it. Do you recall any of the kind of parameters around it? So the way the funding gets put from the state to the families, for instance, is through allowances. Okay. Um, the allowances are based off the child's age. Obviously, an older child will cost more than a toddler would. So families are allocating more money if for that. Um, also, if there's special needs or have um, need more medical assistance, families are allocating more money for that as well. The um, I feel like that would be the only real. Wait, the own subpart two because a grant obviously has a lot more strict funding since grants have more strict parameters for the funding. Um, subpart one also funds 
the court services that children must go to and their social workers and caseworkers. So there are social workers. So each state mm -hmm. has some set of social workers. Federally, they must meet with their social worker once a month. Okay. So each foster parent um, has to meet with a social worker by law, no matter which state, once a month. The child meets with. The child meets yeah. with the, with the caseworker. Mm -hmm. And so one piece of this is that there are caseworkers that they have to meet with with some regularity mm -hmm. at least once a month. Yes. All right. And so you have, so the pieces of this then are the federal government gives money to the states. The states disperse those funds to the families per child. They also hire caseworkers to oversee and, and kind of check in on the families and check in on the uh, children. Okay. So in general, to me, this sounds like pretty good thing that we do to help protect uh, children. Uh, but in your report, I know that there are a number of issues with this in practice, right? And so let's talk a little bit about some of the problems the foster care program has as it's trying to deliver high quality uh, childhoods for children that don't have long-term parents. So the first one that you mentioned in your report is, remind me, Lack of trauma care. Lack of trauma, all right? Lack of trauma care. And so what do you mean by lack of trauma care? Yes, so like Elizabeth said earlier, there are caseworkers that are hired for each child, and they do have to meet monthly with the child, obviously. But these caseworkers don't necessarily have to deal with their traumatic issues. They're not child psychologists, so they don't know how to help these children move past these types of issues that they've gone through, such as neglect, physical, or mental abuse. So oftentimes these children go through their whole lives with these deeply rooted issues, which further lead to negative adulthood behavior, such as crime, addictive behavior, and further mental health issues. So the idea is that the caseworkers in general aren't trained to be counselors. They're trained to kind of check in and make sure the rules are being followed and the children are basically cared for. Correct. But these stronger interventions, like how do children deal with trauma, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of opportunity for trauma when they're moving from different homes, they don't have parents. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, so the report is highlighting then that they don't have easy access to resources to help them deal with that trauma. Yes, right. precisely. Okay, and then the second problem is mismatched foster pairings, is what you identify in your report. So what do you mean by mismatched foster pairings, and how is that contributing to a problem for this program? So with the lack of trauma care and lack of psychological evaluation during the adoption process, it is not uncommon to see children being mismatched with adoptive parents and adoptive families because their triggers that they've gone through as a younger child aren't captured in the adoptive process. So there is a higher chance of being paired with adoptive parents that don't really know how to deal with those triggers and the child could wind up back in foster care, which costs the state more money and more money. And the cycle just keeps going. And so when you say mismatched, you mean that the, the parents probably are, the foster parents aren't fully aware of all the challenges that are that are coming their way because the adoption process doesn't capture those. Exactly. And so it's it's a the foster parents may not have the ability to meet the needs of a particular child because those needs aren't captured 
in the process by which they assign the child to a foster care parent. Yes, like, and for example, I read a case that the child was enter- like entering a home and they had a dog and the child was afraid of dogs, so he had to be put back in foster care. And things like that can be captured with psychological evaluation during the, the adoption process. And do you know what, or does anyone in the group know um, what types of information the agency, uh, the, I think it's, I believe it's the Children's Bureau, but what type of information do they collect that then is available to the parents or the foster care parents? Do you know what the matching process looks like? Is that something y'all looked at more specifically? Um, I think at this point, it actually kind of goes into our next problem. Excellent. Well, let's transition there. There's a foster family shortage in the U.S. So at this point, um, there's, like, ideally they would be able to match, um, but if there's a shortage of families, then they're going to send kids wherever there's parents. Like, they're going to send kids wherever there's qualified families who have done all of the things that they need to do and gone through the whole process. Um, So, I mean, ideally that would happen, but the reality is there's just not enough homes for these children to go to to be able to match them really well so you can't match children to ideal foster parents if there's just not enough foster parents to go around Mm -hmm. and so a piece of this is not only the matching process having some challenges but spills over with the matching challenges are are a function of or are related to this idea that we just don't have enough foster parents and there's a shortage how serious uh to shift to the Next problem that you identified, which is the foster family shortage. How serious is this problem? I mean, do we have an idea of how short we are on foster parents? There are roughly 60 families for every 310 children in the system. Oh, wow. So it's not even close. No. And the system has 20,000 children that age out of the system without a family every year. And what does it look like for for children who don't get to don't ever get foster parents? I mean, we're the the children that are experiencing this shortage when they can't pair them with a family. What what happens to those children? They go to group homes. They go to small group home, homes. They go to emergency shelters. Um, they it's kind of like the orphanages that we heard about mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, and it pretty problematic because it makes their lives more at risk than it would be. So they're more at risk to become victims of sex trafficking, of substance abuse, of to experience homelessness, to participate in criminal activity. Um, the farther along, the less one-on-one care that they get, the more likely they are to have those adverse situations in their life. So for children that end up in group homes, instead of having foster care parents, their uh, likely outcomes from empirical evidence is much worse for their ability to kind of become members, full functioning members of society. So this is like, so it's not that this should be a substitute for foster parents, these group homes. I mean, the shortage is a real problem, even if children are able to find temporary stay with group homes or emergency care. There's a huge difference in the outcomes for children who are able to get foster parents versus those that aren't in the system. Absolutely. Okay, Um, let's keep on moving. So the fourth one that you identify in your report is uh, the challenge of re-entry for marginalized groups, which is something we were kind of hitting on a little bit already. So what do you mean by re-entry for marginalized groups? Re-entry into what and who are these marginalized groups? So it'd be re-entry into the foster care system because marginalized groups in terms of foster care and adoption are children who are older 
as well as children with severe psychological issues or needs, as well as just uh, mental disabilities. So um, any children ranging from like ADHD or they have Asperger's, you know, it can be very kind of mm -hmm. things that people can manage, but it's just hard to deal with that. And the parents aren't prepared and the system isn't prepared to prepare the parents or the children into going into this foster care situation. So when and you say going back got into it. the cycle and it just continues into this kind of thing. And it goes into what Anya spoke about is that they age out and then they are just kind of left. Gotcha. So older children are at higher risk because they're less likely to be taken in by a foster family. So this would count as a marginalized group and children with uh, mental or behavioral challenges also would can be considered marginalized groups in this analysis. And when you say, um, when you say that the reentry, reentry is they were placed in a foster home and it didn't work out. And so they come back into the system and have to wait for another foster family. And then there's this piece also that you mentioned that is after, I assume it's 18, after they turn into an, a, an adult legally? 21. 21. 21. And so 21 is the age. And so at 21, do they have access to any of these resources or are they pretty much just said to fend for themselves? I mean, is there a transition period? How does this work? Um, for some, kind of based on nonprofits that it might be in their area, there have been some nonprofits for older people in the program, especially when they're going to college, that foster those type of social skills that they may be lacking from being in foster care. Um, but it, that's so based off your geography, your location, and just being able to get there. It's not the easiest thing. It's not something that the government is mandating or regulating. So there's definitely a gap of kind of transition care, similar to, for example, when people are released from prisons, right? There's not a lot of transition assistance to go from the context they were in to being a full functioning member of society. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like that also is, although not highlighted in your, uh, well, it is kind of highlighted in your report as a marginalized group, except they can't re-enter at a certain age. And so then they're entering into society without the skills they need to be productive members. And my guess is that a real percentage of them, society ends up providing benefits in a different way for. Mm -hmm. My guess is the incarceration rate is higher than the average person along with sort of mental health challenges and using the healthcare system more expensively. And so if we're not providing assistance as they're transitioning into adulthood, we end up as a society kind of covering those costs later on anyways. I mean, is that pretty much the understanding? Definitely. Yes. yes. You can think of it at the micro level. So you are, okay, think about like any young adult anywhere, when they have a problem, who do they call? They call their mom, they call their dad, That's they right. call an uncle, like they're, these, Children or these young adults don't have that. So when they have a problem, they just Google it. If they have internet, mm -hmm. go to the library, check out a book. Like mm -hmm. there's, their resources are very lacking in some of just like the very basic life skills, like how to balance a checkbook. Well, if they've been in and out of a foster care their whole life, they might not have been taught how to do that. And now when they have to like pay rent, they don't know how. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's things like that, like very basic life skills that they might not even have. Yeah, I mean, if you sort of stop and think about it, I mean, what percentage of your life skills do you get from your parents on average, right? If you have a two-parent home in particular, I mean, your parents probably were more likely to teach you how to write a check or teach you how to budget or learn basic personal care. And so I, I know as a, as still trying to be a functioning adult, right, <laughs> that 
even <laughs> through graduate school, right? I ended up in situations where I needed help. And so who did I call? I called my mom and dad, right? Whether it was for advice or whether it was for financial help, right? And so I had that. And if I, if I hadn't had those, even given a pretty quality education, I'm not sure I would have made it to 30, right? Because there were several times when I needed real help from my uh, family network. So it's just, it's you can easily imagine how it only takes one or two mistakes or not having access to the exact piece of information that you need, that as you transition out of foster care into the, the broader world, you would have some real challenges adjusting, right? Not to mention just not having those networks there that we know help us succeed, right? All right, so the, the final uh, problem that you mentioned in your report is reunification with biological families. So explain that to me. So that is the primary goal of the foster care system is to reunite these children with their families. Um, on the statistic from the Child Bureau showed that 55% of cases are given a permanency goal. So once they're put into the system, no matter how long, the final objective is to put them back with their biological families, whether it's a mom, or a father, or maybe it's, we'll touch on it later, but kinship adoptions, so uncles or grandmothers or aunts or any kind of that thing. And so, I mean, it's a very good goal. Like, part of it, you want to keep children with their families because mm -hmm. there's a lot of trauma that's associated with the foster care system. There's a lot of needs that aren't met and things that are formed because they're no longer with their family. They're constantly moving and they don't have that sense of being in a place. And, but within that, um, reunification has a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. um, it's allocated almost $95,000, $95 million wow, <laughs> um, a year between all the states. And, mm -hmm. But within each state, they get to decide if they want to use that. And they also get to decide which version they want to use. So we, there's subpart one and subpart two. And subpart two is, has a time delay on it, so it's mm -hmm. a 15-month reunification. So if it isn't met in that time frame, then no money can be allocated to that child. And it's also, when broken down between the states that choose it and then also the amount of money, it's only $230 per child with a little over 400,000 children in the system at that time. And so that's not a lot of money for them to, for the families to use with the children, for them to use to find adequate care for really just anything. I mean, $230 I think we can all test buys a book yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so um, another problem with that is a strained relationship with the judicial system a lot of the times the judicial system is working on its own network the families are in their own whether it's the biological or the foster the children are on their own and the caseworkers are kind of helping to maybe manage some of this um, and actually I'd interviewed a friend of mine who um, had adopted a kid with autism Mm -hmm. from the foster care system and she spoke of the mother had one of this family or one of the child and the caseworker had said you're not fit she had lost another child to the foster care system because the child was addicted to bcp when the moment it was born mm -hmm. and so this child should not be allowed to go back with the mother but the judicial system saw well there's no real harm she's not going to cause his child harm so it's fine to put him back and the caseworker said no the family said no and they were like i mean that's just there's no harm, you know, she's not, she, she loves this child, she wants him back, and so they gave him, they had to give him back. They eventually fought and got the child back, and the child's completely safe and healthy and happy now in his adopted family, but it's just a case of the judicial system doesn't understand, it's just trying to get a case through, it's trying to focus on an objective. And a final thing we saw was a high turnover, turnover rate of staff, um, whether it's due to inadequate 
staffing of a specific area, and so one staff member can have 50 cases. And that wears on you. You can't do that much to all these cases that need individual and specialized care. And it's also that they have secondary trauma from a lot of these things, and that's not met or dealt with. And so they just kind of have to suffer on their own and try and help people who are also dealing with so much of these issues. And so workers don't feel appreciated. They don't feel like things are happening because the system isn't working with them or their cases, and they end up leaving. Mm -hmm. And so their cases are dropped mm -hmm. and given to the next person who doesn't understand what they've been working with for, say, a year. And so the cases kind of just get muddled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could certainly imagine, I think, how, um, and this is something we talk about in class, which is there's often when dealing with these public problems, there are multiple actors, right? And sometimes those different agencies don't always communicate well across. Um, and so that, that very much... Um, hampers often the process of trying to get the children the, the care they need um okay so and you, you you mentioned a, a number i hadn't we hadn't talked about yet but four hundred thousand was a number of children that you mentioned is that approximately the number of children that are in the foster care system yes it's four hundred fifteen thousand one hundred and twenty nine in 2014 when both of these numbers were collected for money and distributed and children in the system so that's how many are currently in the foster care system. Wow, so that's almost half a million children, right? Mm -hmm. Goodness, that's much larger than I had realized before y'all did this report. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of children. Um, okay, so we've identified some of the problems, which is a little bit of a, a downer. Some of these issues, sometimes talking about how they affect children is really challenging for me, and you'll notice that throughout some of these podcast episodes that when it comes to things that as a society we're harming children, it's hard to stay calm about, but we'll do our best. And so let's shift to solutions, right? Part of this project and part of this uh, podcast is to not just identify the solutions, but put forth some potential solutions, even if they're not perfect, ways to go from where we are now to better outcomes. And in this case, particularly for children. So you identify a couple of solutions. So would someone like to jump in and tell me about the first one? So what, our first solution is trauma screening, which we've kind of touched on here and there um, of the effects of trauma and what it can lead to. Because um, one of the big problems, as we've mentioned, is of course that these children are being placed in homes and the families are not equipped to handle the trauma that's associated with them. Um, so one of the things that we suggested was that to have improved trauma screenings prior to a children being placed into some type of home and then that way the parents would have an idea of what they should expect or they can ask their caseworker for ways to facilitate certain situations that might arise. And so the idea would be to provide some trauma care training, additional trauma care training for the foster parents and maybe for the caseworkers as well? I, absolutely. I mean that would I would think that any of us who were accepting a child into our home would want to be prepared for mm -hmm. anything that that child might bring about. And there are some states that are doing this already. So here in Texas, for example, um, the Texans Care for Children organization has outlined a system to improve their trauma screening. But it's, again, because it's not unified nationally, it's just these little pockets here and there depending on what state they're in. So the type of care you get um, related to trauma care as a child is highly dependent on whether your state or nonprofit organizations within that state 
have put resources to it because Absolutely. if they haven't, then they don't have access to those. It's all geographically based. Got it. All right. What's the second solution? Um, our second one was quality placement for marginalized groups. So like Ashley said before, older children in the program, as well as special needs children. These are kind of going off also trauma screening, people that need a little bit extra TLC when they're entering a, a new home. Um, special needs kids may have additional trauma or just confusion, a lack of relationship base with their new family based off their own mental state as well as their previous home, um, depending on what kind, kind of abuses were going on. So for special needs children, we suggested that social worker meetings and caseworker meetings should be more than once a month. And they should include both the child and the family to really make sure that there is a relationship forming, that this child isn't being held back like behaviorally or socially or educationally because of this transition. Um, we also suggested just a higher increase in accountability to make sure abuses aren't happening and that all medical care and educational learning assistance needs are met. Um, just because that is something that can help the child further along as they start to age out of the program, which brings us to older children who, if they've been within foster care for the majority of their life, they probably have lasting trauma that will make it harder to go on to college, to finish even high school, to go on to job and trade training or just direct employment. So we suggested pairing them with families that might also have older children who have gone through high school and college or who have just are near facilities that can handle um, both therapy that can help them transition out of foster care, as well as just mentorship programs, especially within people of the same age group, this 16 over age group say, that can motivate each other both to build social relationships they may be lacking, but also to go on past high school, just educationally and mentally. Excellent. So uh, trauma care, quality placement, I want to come back to both of these because I, I'm seeing sort of a common thread across these. But before we do that, you, you also uh, propose kinship adoptions. And so tell me about how kinship adoptions work and how they might help alleviate the strain on the foster care system. So kinship adoptions are just that simple um, relatives that will adopt the foster care of children. Um, one of the big reasons we chose kinship adoptions as a solution is because a lot of the children in foster care are in foster care because their parents are on drugs or they just have behavior issues. And so usually the families um, of those said parents uh, traditionally typically are better off and it's easier for the child. Um, and, and it's easier for them to adapt. We were kind of looking at the statistics because like trauma, trauma is a big issue um, quality placement that Elizabeth just talked about, um, that's an issue, and so it's usually easier for kinship adoptions. Um, it's usually easier for the child to go through kinship adoptions. Um, and so the idea there is that if it's someone that's that you're that knows you already, it's family, it's there's less barriers to having a good quality childhood because you're in the same right. community, you're in the same culture, there are things that and you have more resources there than maybe through a foster care home. Right, and you're with a family you love. So if you're with someone that you know, say like your grandparent, like it's much easier to establish that parental role and you can still call them if you have a flat tire or if you just need some help and some life advice. And so you have someone that you already have somewhat of a connection with um, and that's easier. And that usually like 
there's less chance of trauma occurring. Um, they're less likely to run away or be neglected because they're going to a family um, that loves them, typically. Mm -hmm. um, so and did you have any strategies or see any other states that have done a very good job of encouraging kinship adoptions? Are there some tools that are... So to me, I think the first two, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, it's hard to imagine that you can do those without more financial resources. If caseworkers are already having 50 cases and high turnover, having uh, more resources to identify quality placement, for example, or have trauma care when the caseworkers are already overloaded, I'm going to suggest and see what your thoughts are that that means we got to have more caseworkers and more resources. But kinship adoption seems one like one that there might be some structural ways to encourage kinship adoptions that wouldn't necessarily require a lot more resources. So what, what's your thought on that? Right. So in 2015, Congress passed the Family Stability and Kinship Care Act. And some of the issues that you kind of touched upon, um, it does increase the funding uh, for the children that are going into kinship adoptions. And it is also decreasing the court time and the paperwork it takes um, and the time between waiting for the kinship adoptions to happen. So there is some progress going on in this area. Excellent. So there's... Yeah. There's a bright side. There's, some there's a rosy <laughs> picture to this. All right. Um, okay. So I wanted to pose a question to the group. Uh, and I think we actually talked about this a little bit in class when you gave this presentation. Um, but it seems like that these are requiring more resources. Is that sort of what your research suggested as well? I mean, these are administrative issues, but it seems like the administrative burden already on the Children's Bureau is that they're, uh, they have more cases than they can handle, and there's not enough foster families right now to meet the load. So is was your sense of this that one of the pieces that's really needed is more money and more resources for this program? Is there a way to do it without doing that, that you think? I think that ne doesn't actually have to come from federal programs, like they don't have to start like a new part of the Children's Bureau, they can use nonprofits to supplement these areas that we've identified. But at the same time, like there are just like having you meet with a caseworker once a month, that is a federally mandated thing within foster care. So it's not out of the question for federal, the federal government to say, um, you must do X for Y, but they do need the funding, like a lot more funding, like $230 a kid is not nearly enough. And, and it doesn't seem that it's nearly enough at all. <laughs> yeah. And one fifth of children are actually placed in foster care that need it. Uh, did you see any, I mean, the the reentry is a problem and the trauma is a problem, but did you come across any research to just increase the number of foster parents? Because one in five seems unacceptable to me that 50 fam or 60 families for 300 children. So was there, did you come across any research that suggested ways to encourage just more foster parents? Because one fifth seems like a, it seems like that's hard to replace without more, without more resources or more foster parents. I mean, did you see anything on that in your research? So I think something we haven't talked about yet that we definitely should is the misconception of where the money goes. Uh, because it's, kind of falsely believed that these foster parents are paid to have children. And that's really not the sense. Like, this isn't a job. Um, they open their hearts and their homes to these families, and the money that they get is directly correlated to the care of the child. So you have an increased mouth to feed, you have doctor's visits, they have school expenses, like those types of 
demands or what the money goes for, the foster families themselves are not being paid to do this. They're just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, if I mean, if you really wanted to increase them, you could provide some monetary incentive mm-hmm. for families, at least maybe until we get over like this big gap that we currently have. And mm-hmm. um, so that's an option. It's probably not the most popular option, but it's like the very baseline, like easiest option mm-hmm. in terms of just like making something standard and seeing a rise mm-hmm. in families. It seems to me that uh, using financial resources for the foster families to incentivize them has some benefits, but also has some concerns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are some concerns, we talked about this in class, as a way to um, potentially incentivize more people to give foster care. We know that that could crowd out some people's intrinsic motivations as part of the concern. And we also would need to be concerned about um the accountability, right? Who are these new foster parents that are coming in that weren't before they were paid, but now there's a little bit more financial incentive. How are they? Uh, how are they encouraged to participate, right? And so I think uh, I think that one way to induce more people to do something is to pay them to do that, right? This is how markets work, but it would need to be uh, structured with strong accountability. Because once you start giving people financial incentives to do these things, there's all of a sudden perverse incentives to not just do it for the children's well-being. I think also something that would maybe keep families in, in the foster care system a little bit longer as far as becoming foster parents is to make the process easier, okay. um, less stressful, people not hanging up on you at the Children's Bureau or the State's Bureau for Child Welfare Services, not having a mile long application process. Obviously there are certain points that need to be hit to make sure the quality of parents going into the system are not poor because these children obviously need great parents and great role models and mentors to transition out of their their family homes. But at the same time, these parents should have the utmost support of the federal government and the state government and local agencies not be pushed back upon. And they, they kind of don't right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's like, I'm trying to find the exact, I think it's 30, 31.8% of families. Let me see if I can find, hold on. Um, yeah, so there were, in, in Florida, there was a study done on families who were exiting the system. And 31.8% felt that they were only somewhat respected or not respected at all by their caseworkers. So there's a tension here between the caseworkers and the foster parents, mm-hmm. um, which could be a function of they have 50 cases at any given one time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not having the time and care to give each family, but it could also be a part of a training or a, a, a management concern, right? How, what type of training do caseworkers get? How well are they paid? How well are we retaining these people? Which goes to another issue we talked about, which is high turnover. So you can imagine how all these things are are pretty interrelated. So I, I have a, after you've done this work, I wanna pose a question to the group, which is, is this the best way to go about uh, taking care of children without, their, without access to biological parents? So I know that in other societies, and particularly in parts of Europe, I believe, they've actually taken orphanages and given them something other than a bad name, right? They pay staff well, they're highly regulated, the per person cost for child seems to be lower when you have a, a space and a group and a group of people who are professionals to take care of, of children without their biological parents. 
But I know we moved away from orphanages because they weren't well regulated. They weren't held highly accountable. And there was a lot of abuse in that system. So just uh, without having reviewed all of the literature, what's your broad feeling? Is this an improvement over orphanages, for example, when one in five kids don't get access to foster homes? Or should we be rethinking this whole problem differently? I think it's really kind of should, an ideal situation would be a mesh of all the things. Um, because the one-on-one -on -one care, the amount of care that you get from a foster family is more ideal for the child when they are placed in a home. But of course, for those children that don't have foster families, they are in group homes. And that's where a lot of the trauma and a lot of the adverse interactions in our life come from. So I, I kind of think that it could be both. Like you could have quality foster families and that relationship built. But then because we have a foster family shortage, those group homes need to be of a good quality standard so that children who have to go there have something that's going to be worthwhile for them, like good for them, as opposed to adverse. I was just going to say, um, you talking about orphanages, I think that, like you said, the big reason we moved away from orphanages is because they weren't um, mandated and then, like they weren't administrated very well. And well, I well regulated, yeah. Regulated. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I think that it's a good reason that we're moving away from them. Um, and I still think that we need to keep it within the federal system because it's something that has to be regulated. Um, yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. No, it's good. I think, I mean, I think this is pretty uh, a challenging issue, right? Because children are at stake, as children are at stake. And what we don't want to do is engage in policy that makes them worse off than they currently are. And so I think uh, there is this concern of, of, of the quality of orphanages. I think Anya stumbled onto something that might be useful, depending on the, the willingness of society to put financial resources behind it, is foster care seems better than orphanages, and orphanages seem like they could be better than not very well-regulated group homes. And so it seems like there might be an ordering there where placing cho uh, children in a home is number one priority, but rather than ending up in a group home, having well-regulated orphanages might be an improvement over the group homes. Elizabeth, you looked like you had something. The only reason I would say that this program as a whole needs to be re-engineered is based off the education standards of children in foster care. They have way lower GPAs than their counterparts. They complete less hours than their counterparts. They're less likely to complete high school and go on to college than their counterparts. And for me, setting up children for a bright future, we're failing them. So personally, I think the, while it's better to have the system we have now than nothing or than to have abusive group homes or orphanages, which we might have had, might have had in the past, I think the current system is just completely failing these children as a whole. And also, we forgot, we didn't mention it all yet, but um, the average adoption that isn't a kinship adoption takes a year and a half to two years. And at any point, the biological parent could take that child back or something could happen within a background check that could make that family lose the child. So there's a lot of, there's a lot more issues to this than just what we mentioned today, even though we did mention the big ones. But for me, I personally think a re-engineering of the complete foster care system would be the most beneficial for the main stakeholder, which is the child. I would, I completely agree with like both like everything that's been said. Like a re-engineering of a federally kind of overarching system because it needs to be controlled. 
I think by the federal government. It's just something that the government should be care about because children are citizens and they're they're our future. And, and along with the education prospect is that they don't do well in education, even though we like in Texas we have if you're in the foster care system for so long, your entire college is paid for. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if other states have that as well, but I know for sure Texas does. And it's just well, that's great that their college is paid for, but if they have these adverse experiences their whole life and never get to that point because they get stuck in a group home that doesn't push them towards that then what's the point of the system and it needs to be rethought and I think also another it would be making it easier for private adoptions because that's how I was adopted was through private adoption that my mom was able to do that mm-hmm. and without really any kind of dealings with the foster care system and all this so it made it easier but it was also we don't get access to a lot of the things that foster families are given such as health care and kind of this allowance, which I know other families have been rejected because their child was done through private means, even though they were in the foster care system for most of their life. So mm-hmm. it's these really kind of small issues that are grander that lead to this. Um, along with the re-engineering, I do agree with you, Elizabeth. I think there needs to be more of a spotlight on implementing more child psychologists within this whole system. There's this overarching believe throughout academia that psychologists are just like, oh, what are you going to do with that bachelor's in psychology? But those can be used for more overarching purposes. These children need to deal with these issues. I mean, they're going through things that you you or I could maybe not even imagine. And they're just going through life with those issues so deeply rooted and unaddressed, which causes even further issues later on. So child psychologists need to be implemented, definitely. Yeah, it certainly seems that these outcomes should be unacceptable to society, right? I mean, I think in some ways you can measure the quality of a society in how well they take care of marginalized groups. And children certainly qualify as a marginalized group that has a hard time defending themselves in society. And so it seems that one in five having access to a foster home is unacceptable. It seems that children not having the trauma care that they need when society is kind of needing to take care of them seems unacceptable. And so I'm glad that this group highlighted these issues. I'm glad that you focused on some of the administrative issues rather than just focusing on political issues. Um, One of the goals here, again, is to try to find ways to go from where we are on pressing issues and at least make progress, right? We don't have to find the perfect solution. We've got to move forward on some of these issues. So I appreciate your thoughts on the solutions. Appreciate your research and your time today. And uh, as you do your, you know, second project for class, if you want to do this again, they're doing a specific project on a public problem. This one was on a public program. So you might get to hear from these lovely voices one more time. So thanks again for your time and uh, uh, take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of season two of the Public Problems Podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so by sharing the episodes with your friends, family, students, and liking our page and following along as we do live events. You can also support the Public Problems Podcast financially by subscribing to the podcast at justinbullock.org slash subscribe or by clicking the shop now button on our Facebook page. Here you can pick any monthly subscription or single donation amount that you'd like to contribute. Any support is greatly appreciated. I very much believe in this podcast and its content and hope to make it more visible and have more time to spend on it in the future. Thank you very much.